Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we pick up in Genesis chapter 19, verse 23. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. You've got a 4th of July display. You've got fire shooting and spouting and and uh, it, it all it needs is just a little glycerin upon it to, to really set the whole thing off. The heavy water will respond upon the potassium permanganate and the potassium nitrates will keep the thing really going and sputtering and sparking and it's like a, a flare. It sputters and all. With all of the potassium nitrate in the area, potassium permanganate in the area, And of course, the area did have great asphalt deposits. Josephus calls the area, rather than the Dead Sea, he called it the Asphalt Sea because of the tremendous asphalt deposits. So all it needed was just a spark from heaven to set things off. And so the whole valley turned into a furnace, a cauldron, and the... Judgment of God came upon these cities and they were destroyed. But his wife looked back from behind him. Now notice she was behind him. She was still lagging back. The word look back can be translated lag back or turn back. And the turn back is a preferable translation. Lot's wife actually began to turn back toward Sodom, and in turning back, she was caught in this great conflagration, and the bubbling, boiling, sputing salts covered her, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, there are many pillars of salt in that particular area that in different times have received the name Lot's wife. There are some even today that the guides will point out as Lot's wife's pillars of salt there in the southern end of the Dead Sea region. Now, the southernmost part of the Dead Sea, the southern 10 miles, is only about 10 to 20 feet deep. In fact, it's less than that now. It's extremely shallow. And many Bible scholars believe that the city of Sodom actually lies under the southern end of the Dead Sea. The northern end of the Dead Sea is 30 miles long and 10 miles wide and has a depth of up to 1,400 feet. But as the result of the silt that has settled through the Jordan entering into the Dead Sea for so many years. The silt has filled up the bottom and it has thus raised the level of the sea until the sea extended southward over this plain area of 10 miles square, covering it. And and that is more recent in time. So that they believe that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah probably lie under the southern end of the Dead Sea. We know of the silting process that's taking place 
uh, where the Colorado en enters into the area of Lake Mead. In fact, we are now quite concerned about this silting up of Lake Mead, uh, how that the volume of water that it contains is less because of all of the silt that is building up, and the silt is actually forming a dam of its own in the upper end of Lake Mead. Already it is creating quite a problem in the Aswan Dam, which is a relatively new dam. And thus the silting process, of course the Jordan is a very muddy river, and the silting process of the Jordan filling up the Dead Sea and causing it to overflow in the southern end, covering the plains, and thus covering perhaps the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They have discovered five cities on the eastern bank of the Dead Sea in the southern end. And they now believe that maybe these were the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar there on the eastern side. But uh, we, of course, are not certain on that, and it doesn't really make that much difference to the scriptural record, except that there is evidence of volcanic action, there is evidence of, of this great destruction of God as he rained fire and brimstone and salt upon this area. And Abraham got up early in the morning from the place where he stood before the Lord in his intercession. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Now Abraham was living in Hebron, which is just about due west from the Dead Sea. And so in looking down, it isn't that many miles, maybe 10, 15 miles from Hebron as the crow flies to the Dead Sea. He saw the smoke coming up from the area of the plains like a great furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham by sending Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. So uh, the indication here is that it was because of Abraham that God spared Lot more than for Lot's sake himself. Now, again, turning to the New Testament, Jesus takes this incident and declares of his second coming, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be at the coming of Son of Man. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. When God overthrew the cities of the plain. And then Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. For he who will seek to save his life shall lose it. Now she was seeking to hold on to the old life of the world. She was turning back to the old life of the world. Seeking to save it, she lost her life. And so the warning of Jesus, remember Lot's wife, turning back to the world, seeking to save the old life of the world, will only destroy you. But he who will lose his life, Jesus said the same will save it. Lose his life for my sake. And so the reverence of Jesus, Peter again refers to this, and it is also referred to in the book of Jude, how that God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, it's them uh, suffering the vengeance of everlasting fire. So Lot went up out of Zoar. He, he asked permission to stay in Zoar, but when he saw this judgment of God destroying the other cities, he became frightened. 
And he left Zoar and he went where the Lord told him to go in the first place, up into the mountains. He fled on up then into the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. And he dwelled in a cave with his two daughters. Now we see the moral corruption of the two daughters that were saved. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's no more men left upon the earth. They thought that the whole earth was destroyed. And, and thus, man is going to be civilization. Man is going to be wiped out. So come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the seed of our father. And so they made their father drunk that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down nor when she arose, and it came to pass on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, I was with my father last night. Let's make him drink wine again tonight that you might lie with him that we may preserve life, the life of our father, the seed of our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. And thus were both of the daughters pregnant from their father Lot. The firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. And he became the head of the nation of Moab or of the people known as the Moabites. And the other daughter bare a son and called him Ben-Ami, and the same is the father of the children of Ammon. And so two nations, uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites, came from Lot. And this relationship with his two daughters, of which he was unaware, uh, but again it shows the moral corruption had its effect upon Lot's family and uh, we see its effects uh, all the way through. The, the effect of a polluted society, it's awfully hard to live in it and not be touched some way or another. Now we leave Lot, that's the end of him. We, we see that he has he does father a couple of nations, Moab and Ammon. It is interesting that uh, Moab inhabited this same area, the, the high country uh, that is east of the Dead Sea. That was the area of the Moabites. The Ammonites moved northward and were in the same range of mountains, only north of the Moabites. They became important nations, and Ruth was a Moabitess who, or she was a girl from Moab who came into the lineage of Jesus Christ later on. So uh, they, they are the descendants of Lot through his two daughters. Abraham journeyed from there towards the south country, and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So Abraham was living in the area of Hebron, but now he is still sort of a nomadic person. If you go over to Israel today, you'll see the uh, Bedouins uh, living in their tents. And uh, they, they are nomadic people. They'll live for a while in an area, and then they'll get up, pack their tents, and move and live in another area. And, and Abram was living in tents. He never had a house to dwell in. Dwelt in tents as a, as a Bedouin, as a stranger, as a sojourner. 
It is interesting that Lot sought to settle down in a city, whereas Abram always realized that he was just a sojourner. He was looking for a city which hath foundation, whose maker and builder was God, and he counted himself just a stranger and a pilgrim upon the earth. So Abram now is moving over into the country of the Philistines. Gerar is the area of the Philistines. And so Abram said of Sarah's wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah into his harem. Now, uh, this is the second time this has happened. Abram did it when they went to Egypt years earlier, and he was rebuked by the Egyptian pharaoh for doing such a thing. Uh, now again, he's doing the same thing, and this certainly says something about Sarah because she's about 90 years old at this point and still retaining her beauty. So if we could only discover the kind of creams and all that she could use, that she used, we could probably make a fortune. Uh, she is still so beautiful that Abram is afraid that, the, that they're going to kill him in order that they might take his wife. And so he says, now you just say you're my sister so that they won't kill me. And so Abimelech saw her and, and took her into his harem but God came to Abimelech, verse 3, in a dream by night and said unto him, you're a dead man. And, uh, or you're dead, man. It's all how you put the punctuation. And in reality, if you'll notice, that's exactly what God said. That art but is, is inserted. That you notice it's in italics. It means that the uh, translators inserted that because they didn't know uh, the way we talk today. And, and God said, hey, you're dead, man. And, uh, <laughs> and so Abimelech, he said, because of the woman which you have taken, she's another man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you also slay a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she's my sister? And even she herself said, he's my brother. It was in the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands I have done this. God evidently smote him with some kind of a deadly plague and says, hey, you've had it, man. You're dead, man, uh, because you've got a woman there who is another man's wife. And so he said, hey, Lord, I'm innocent. Hey, I didn't know. She said she was the sister, and that's what he said about her. And, and, and I'm innocent, Lord. I didn't really know. And God said, yes, I know that you did it in the integrity of your heart, for I also have withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not allow you to touch her. So God's hand working in the background, God not allowing him to touch Sarah. Now, therefore, God said, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. And if you don't restore her, know that you will surely die and all that are yours. And therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and he called all of his servants and he told these things in their ears and the men were very frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What have you done to us? And what have I done to you that you've brought upon me in my kingdom this great sin? And uh, thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, 
What sawest thou that you've done this thing? In other words, man, what did I do to you that you do this to me? Why did you do this to us? And he's challenging the man of God. Abraham is known as the father of those who believe. He is used throughout the scripture as the classic example of men who believe God and the word of God. And whenever the Bible wants to use a classic example of faith, it always points to Abraham. Because Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. But you know, I like the honesty of the Bible. The Bible doesn't pretend at all that Abraham's faith was perfect. It tells us even of these lapses of faith. It is not faith for Abraham to say, hey, she's my sister. That's not really having faith in God. That's a lapse of faith. And somehow I get comfort from it. Because if Abraham's faith were totally perfect, then I think, oh, there's no chance for me. You know, if the guy was in everything just absolutely perfect, they say, well, sure, look how God bless him. No wonder God bless him. The guy's perfect. God bless perfect people. But Abraham was not at all perfect, though he is used as a classic example of those who believe in God. What does it mean? It means that God will honor my little faith too. And God will bless me, though I am imperfect also. It doesn't mean that my faith has to be perfect and constant and steadfast at all times, never wavering, never doubting, never fearing, never questioning. It means that God can bless me and God will bless me just because of my simple trust in him as faltering or as failing as it might be at times in certain circumstances. There are a lot of tests that I fail. God has put me to a lot of tests where I failed miserably. I went out of the classroom with an F. But he let me take the test again. And some of them I failed two or three times before I passed. God is gracious. And God is patient. And Abraham, our father in, of those who believe, was a man who had great faith in God that brought him recognition in history. And yet the faith was not perfect. Here we find him deceiving the king concerning his wife because of fear. Twice he was put to this test. Twice he failed on this particular test of faith. In the supreme test of faith, man, the guy passed with flying colors. Isn't it interesting how that we can have such great faith in some areas and then just go, turn right around and get totally wiped out? It makes us realize that even the faith that we have has come to us as a gift from God so that we can't boast in that. So the king is rebuking Abraham. What have you done, man? What, what, had I, what have I ever done to you that you'd do this kind of a thing to me? How come you said she's your sister? Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God isn't in this place. And they will slay me for my wife's sake. He looked around and said, man, these people don't fear God. They're going to kill me for my wife. And he said, indeed, she is my sister, 
for she is the daughter of my father, but she's not the daughter of my mother. So she was a half-sister to Abraham, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Every place where we go, say that he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants, and he gave them to Abraham and restored Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever you are pleased. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all others. And thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech, and his wife and the maidservants, and they bare children, for the Lord had caused a barrenness to come to the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So uh, Sarah could have been with him for a period of time before this all took place, and yet he had never come to her intimately, though she was a part of the harem. return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Genesis on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Genesis 19 through 20 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May God bless you and keep His hand upon your life to guide, to strengthen, to bless. May he minister to your life in such a way that you'll be very conscious of the presence of God. May he just burst upon the scene and may you just recognize his nearness and his grace and his love and just be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. May the Lord bless, watch over, and keep you through Jesus Christ our Lord. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Undoubtedly, one of the most glaring signs that our society is in trouble is the breakdown of the family unit. Marriages just aren't making it today, and kids are suffering as they watch the breakup of their homes. Those marriages still holding together are often plagued by conflict and turmoil, making the home a battleground instead of a refuge. 
That's why The Word for Today would like to present Pastor Chuck Smith's Marriage and Family MP3, where Pastor Chuck discusses basic biblical principles to keep a family's love alive. Each member of the family has a different set of needs and responsibilities. And when you know and apply God's principles, everyone in the family can experience real peace, real joy, and an agape love. To order your copy of the Marriage and Family MP3 by Chuck Smith, call The Word for Today at 800-272-WORD or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.